Thanks, Nate. You know, the baptism really sets everything in perspective, doesn't it? You know, I've been praying about this TV ministry stuff and asking the Lord to really just show us what His will is, and, you know, it's not that big a deal, is it? Lives that are changed, that are transformed by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing souls that are saved. Now Brett and Bryce are secure. Their eternity is set. That's eternity, not, you know, 20, 30 years, 76 years that Woodmont's been around. That's a blip on the map of the Lord's kingdom and the work of the Lord. So let's remember that. I'm reminding myself of that. Thank you, God, for the, the perspective that children bring us. Thank you, Brett and Bryce, for preaching that message to us today. I'm so glad to be able to preach this morning from one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the crux of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. This is the, the, the centerpiece, the, the climax of Paul's argument in the book of 2 Corinthians. And I believe that if we will simply soak in this passage this morning, if we will just dwell richly in God's Word for the next 25 minutes, then we will be changed. We will be fired up and commissioned by the Gospel to go out and change the world for His sake and for His glory. So let's stand if you're able this morning as we read together 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11-21. through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Excellent. Have a seat. It's a, a powerful passage, isn't it? One of my, my mentors who led our college Bible study, we'd read, we'd read a powerful passage like that, and he would always go, mm, rich. It's rich. I can hear him 
saying that now. That's how I feel after reading 2 Corinthians 5. Mmm, so rich. Before we start diving into this text, though, let's, let's just back up and rem- remember the, the context of, of 2 Corinthians. This is the apostle's uh, fourth letter to the church in Corinth. He's had a real rocky relationship with these folks. He, he planted this little church in Corinth, this major cosmopolitan city, a, a city of trade. I was talking to Mike Whittle after the service last week. He has walked among the merchant shops that are still there today in Corinth, the, the ruins of the first century marketplace in ancient Corinth. You can go there today. For those of you who've been there, I'm sure you, you don't read this the same way as the rest of us. You have a context for it in your head. And, and Paul's trying to help this little church grasp, even in his fourth letter, what the gospel is really all about at its core. He's still trying to instruct them on, on how uh, God has redeemed us by grace through faith in Christ, and then how then we shall live in light of the gospel. Last week, I grilled a couple ribeyes up here, and someone on our sermon listening team said, next time you do that, you better serve hors d'oeuvres. And we read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where Paul begins to explain what our role is now that we are in Christ. For those of us who are united with Christ, just like Brett and Bryce are now united with Christ. And, and someone on our, our, our sermon listening team, by the way, tomorrow around 2 p.m., hopefully I'll, I'll go Facebook Live. I, I did it earlier last week because I had a, an event on Monday afternoon I had to be at. But someone pointed out there's this really cool juxtaposition in 2 Corinthians 2 between us being captives who are led by Christ in, in triumphal procession. We are his prize, the conquered people, but we're also the priest who have this authority so on the one hand, we're, we're in chains for Christ, but we also have the authority of priests at the same time because the priests are the ones who, who spread the fragrance of victory everywhere they go. Our, our ministry of reconciliation involves spreading this fragrance of Christ. That's the, the idea that, that Paul's introducing in, in that, that passage. He shows us what new covenant ministry looks like. That the, the work that we are to be about now is offering ourselves up on the altar as a living sacrifice, pleasing and holy and acceptable to God as an act of spiritual worship, who, who God then works through in order to advance his purposes. And Paul asked the question in, in chapter 2, verse 16, who's sufficient for these things? He's basically saying, who's able to, to die to themselves completely? Who's able to allow God to work through them in such a selfless and powerful way that they completely become abandoned to themselves and and totally living for God? And the answer he's implying is no one. No one is sufficient for these things because gospel work has never been about human ability. It's never been about humans doing something. It's about God doing something. This is all from God, Paul says here in chapter 5. Who can be a minister of the new covenant? Who can be worthy enough, skilled enough to accomplish God's purposes? No one. Look at verse 5, though, chapter 3. It'll be on the screen here. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. The greatest missionary ever says we're not good enough to do this. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
You see, anyone who has been baptized, anyone who's been united with Christ is now a minister. I've heard you know, youth ministers say when a kid comes forward to accept Christ, they say, call mama because you're going into the ministry now. You've been called into the ministry. Everyone who is a, a member of the body of Christ is called to minister part of the new covenant ministry that we've now been given through Christ. And this ministry that, that we have is a spiritual ministry. It's, it's not a human endeavor. It's one that relies upon the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. So it was, if it was based on simply teaching rules, do's and don'ts, he says, the letter of the law, then it would lead to death because no one can follow those rules good enough. But thank God it's not based on that. It's a spiritual endeavor based on grace. A spiritual ministry gives life and not death. I love Richard Foster's little book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, where he goes through this, the spiritual disciplines. And the opening lines of that book, he makes this bold claim. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. This was written in the 80s. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is primarily a spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. I love that. The spiritual life is one of depth. It's not about being skilled. It's not about being gifted or intelligent. It's about being someone who, who sees through the reality of the surface and goes deeper. People who are deep. Paul picks up on this theme in our passage for today. He's, he's talking about the spiritual life, that, which is the key to so much of what ails us. He's saying that we, we have to learn to live spiritually, to set our minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. In verse 11, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord as a spiritual reality, we, then for, we therefore persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, surface things, and not about what is in the heart where the spiritual reality lies. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. You know, whenever a passage starts with therefore, like verse 11 does, it's always a good idea to look at what was said before it. Paul's describing this, this spiritual ministry that we've been given ever since chapter 2, where we're, we're the, the fragrance of Christ. He's, he's showing that it's not about physical realities. In chapter 4, he says, yeah, sure, on the outside, we're wasting away, that's true, but inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. I keep learning as I age, and we've both got birthdays this month, Richard's is tomorrow, he's got a big one, that, that outwardly, I feel like I'm falling apart sometimes, <laughs> can't keep up with my kids like I used to, but inwardly, where our spiritual reality lies, we're being made new. Renewed in our spirit day by day. We grow younger in our spirits. Then here in chapter 5, he writes about the hope of heaven. Look at the first verse. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Martin Luther wrote, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
You see, all, all of this stuff is temporary. It's just a shell. Our bodies are, are such a fleeting and temporary shell. What last are the true promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? Rick Warren says that everyone is betting their lives on something. It's true, isn't it? We all, at, at our foundational, kind of fundamental base level, have some sort of fundamental truth that we're operating out of, that we're betting our lives on. And, and no one can prove which, which foundational truth is the right one to have. So we're all taking a leap, right? It may be a leap of faith, or it may be a leap of doubt, like some of my atheist friends. But either way, it's a leap, right? Everyone's taking some sort of bet on their lives that, 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 that we're all just putting our faith in. It may be faith in science, it may be faith in something else. For us as Christians, we put our faith in the living God and in the triune God and in the sufficiency of God's grace through Jesus Christ to make us right with himself. And we know this truth. And, and, and so for Christians, we believe that Christ will have the final say at the end of all things, that he is the one who sits on the seat of power from which he will rightly judge the world. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether for good or evil. You know, on Wednesday nights, we've been walking through the minor prophets, and we talk a lot about God's judgment. There's a lot of judgment in there. But for us as God's people, we shouldn't fear God's judgment. We should long for it. God's judgment is simply putting wrong things right. God's judgment is about justice. It's about setting the record straight. It's about ending the cheaters and the liars and the thieves and the murderers. It's about ending all of that. We should welcome God's judgment because we know we can stand with confidence on the day of judgment because of Jesus Christ. We know that we have nothing to fear in God's judgment. So this is about this fear of the Lord, he says here in verse 11, is about having this understanding that, that God is the one who makes us right. It's not about being scared. It's not about, you know, uh, having a fear of the Lord that, that makes you cringe. It's, it's about a holy reverence and an awe of how amazing and how wonderful and perfect our God is. The power of his uh, sufficiency to save us. Therefore, because we know this, we work to persuade others to know this as well. There must be an outward focus to the new covenant ministry that we are always seeking to persuade others. We spread his fragrance everywhere we go. And he says here, God knows our hearts, our motivations for, for persuading others, and so do the people in Corinth that Paul's writing to. He's like, you know my heart, guys. You know I'm not doing this for money. These, these false missionaries who have come into Corinth, who in chapter 2 he calls peddlers of God's word, they're like, we'll teach you God's word for a fee. And, and they were lying. They were teaching these falsehoods about the outward appearance is what matters. Paul's always fighting these guys, the, the Judaizers, who say, oh yeah, you want to follow Christ? That's cool. All you got to do is get circumcised, start dressing like a Jew, start acting like a Jew, eating like a Jew, and then you can follow Christ. Christ plus anything is a false religion, right? Christ alone is sufficient for us. The gospel is not... Christ plus anything else. It's just Jesus Christ and him crucified. So now that 
Paul has addressed these motivations for ministry, he moves on to the scope of this ministry. Look at verse 14. It's for all people. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, for their sake, died and was raised. And was raised, very important. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Ah, such a beautiful passage. Such a beautiful promise of the hope of of the new creation. You know, when, when we are united to Christ, we become little walking, talking previews of the new creation that is to come. God's making all things new. Revelation 21, verse 5, when, when the end of the whole story happens and, and Christ is seated on the throne, what does he say? Behold, I am making all things new. That's the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation of which we are now a preview. We get to show others what it means to walk in newness of life now that we have been resurrected with Christ. God is always in the business of recreating, of making new, of redeeming, bringing it back, of reconciling, putting things together, reversing the curse of sin, and and renewing all things. And the centerpiece of, of all this work, of this whole business, the key part of his strategy is the cross of Jesus Christ. The the death and resurrection of our Lord has huge universal implications. It split history. You have life before Christ and life after. He he has died the death that all of us should have died. The, The penalty that we incurred when we were born sinful, he has taken upon himself as the spotless, sacrificial lamb who alone could pay the price that we could never have hoped to cover. And because he died, we're now free, both from the penalty of sin and the power of sin now. So we can live, we can really live abundantly and eternally, not not for our own petty, selfish kind of existence, but for something far greater, something that lasts, for the kingdom of God stands forever. So now we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, which means we don't buy into the lie that outward appearances are what matters, that this physical life is all that there is. We don't buy that. We have a deeper spiritual reality through which we see other people now. That affects how we see not only other people, but it also affects how we see Christ too. We don't regard him according to the flesh either. Christ is not not just some cute little baby in a manger. He's the victorious general who's seated on the throne, who has accomplished the work of salvation for you and for me and for this whole world in his death and resurrection. This is love. The kingdom of of God is defined by love, not a sentimental puppy dog, school kid kind of love. The love of Christ is shown nowhere in, in a better way than on the sacrificial death on the cross. This is real agape love. This is gift love that Trey preached about a couple weeks ago. 
This is love that thinks only of the other, and therefore it has the ability to control us, to shape our lives, to form us as people. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 shows how the grace and the love of Christ forms our lives. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. Training us to renounce ungodliness and stupid, I added that, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what a life shaped by the love of Christ looks like. Godly living now, always hopeful in the spiritual reality that Christ reigns, that he rules from from his throne on heaven, and also eagerly passionate about doing the ministry of good works while we wait for Christ's return zealous to to advance his kingdom. And that brings us to the the crux of of this whole passage and to the whole book of 2 Corinthians, verse 18. Just in case you still don't get it, Paul's now driving home this ministry of the new covenant that we've been entrusted with in the gospel. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, thanks be to God for his grace, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, the the, the word reconcile means to to restore uh, a relationship that has been ruptured. It it, it means to, to cause two opposing elements to coexist in harmony. That's what to reconcile means, to to make it line up for those of you who are accountants and do reconciling work in your business. This this word reconcile is very important, obviously, to the ministry of, of reconciliation that we've been given. God's been in the business of reconciling the world back unto himself ever since Genesis 3. When sin entered into what was formerly a good, good creation and plunged the whole cosmos into death and darkness and decay and suffering. Look at Colossians 1. How is God reconciling this all back to himself? Through Jesus Christ, of course. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if God is reconciling all things back to himself, then that implies a rupture, right, from Genesis 3. It implies that all things have been lost at some point to God. 
I think that there's a, a chart that I find really helpful for understanding the, the meta-narrative, the big picture of Scripture. I shared this with our senior adults, and we're just going to briefly look at it, and if it feels like you're drinking from a fire hose, I apologize. But I, I, let's, let's go back to ninth grade English real quickly, okay? Uh, in ninth grade English, I remember we studied Romeo and Juliet, and you learned these, these five-act structures of drama. Do you remember this? Five-act structures. Act one is, is called the exposition it's where the main characters are introduced. It's where the setting is, is laid, right? In Fair Verona, where our story lies. I don't remember the, the opening lines of Romeo and Juliet, but you know what I mean. It's the exposition, right, that starts it out. And then you have, what, rising action in Act 2. Remember that? And that's all, you know, the drama's building until what? Act 3, which is the climax, right? Do you remember this, teenagers? Do you all study this still? Do you? Good. Okay. And then you have, what, falling action in, in Act 4? And that all leads to Act 5, which is what? The resolution, or the denouement, right? That's the French word for it. It's the unwinding of the knot is what that means, the resolution. So in, in terms of Scripture, I find it really helpful to think of the exposition, Act 1, as creation. Genesis 1 through 3. And at the end of Act 1, there's always an inciting moment. Do you remember this from English class, inciting moment? Yeah? It's where conflict is introduced. That's the fall. Not the fall of man, the fall of creation, right? Where death and, and thorns and thistles and, and, and work is cursed. All that happens at the end of Act 1, which leads to Act 2, which is what I call covenant people. Covenant people 1, God makes a, a covenant with Abraham. and says, I'm going I'm to redeem the world through a family. I'm going to make a people set apart for myself, and I'm going to use this family to, to redeem the world. They're going to be the conduit of blessing into the whole world, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then he gives them the law, but the law just shows them how far, how far short they are of God's standard of perfection. And it gets worse and worse. You have the kingdom, and then it splits. And then you have these prophets who come in, like we're studying on Wednesday night. Then there's 400 years of darkness. No, no word from the Lord. 400 years of silence. But it's always darkest before the dawn. Act 3, boom. In a manger in Bethlehem, comes God in the flesh, the incarnation, God on a rescue mission to our world. The climax is Christ, of course. The climax is that point in the story after which nothing will be the same. Everything changes. Christ is the climax of the story of everything ever. History literally divides on the incarnation of God coming to our world, giving us words of, of life, and then dying our, our sacrificial death on the cross, the death that we owed, and then being raised by the power of God into a resurrected life. And that leads to our part, chapter 4. Act 4 is the falling action. This is the now, but not yet. Now, everything's different. Now, Christ has conquered sin, the power and the penalty of death. But, <laughs> we still have cancer. We still have uh, divorce. We still have uh, uh, poverty. We, we still have politics in war. We still have these, these, these awful things that we deal with in our lives. So we live in this tension. Act 4 is kind of a weird time because we're headed towards the resolution. We know that. And who are the covenant people now in Act 4? It's us. The church. The set-apart, called, and consecrated people are now the body of Christ. The church. As we are headed towards Act 5, which is the new creation where Christ will sit on his throne the, in the new heaven and the new earth and say, behold, I make all things new. It's important to understand our ministry in the context of 
the story of everything ever. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation in order to carry out God's redemptive purposes throughout history in the story of everything ever. And that leads us to verse 21, which is one of the most important verses for understanding the gospel. It says, for our sake, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You understand what this means? This, this means that Christ took our sin upon himself. Christ, who lived a perfect life. Christ, who never, ever, ever sinned in his entire life. He, he took all of that shame and suffering and baggage that we bring upon his own shoulders. And what did he give us in exchange? He gave us his righteousness. His perfection that he earned, he gave to us. Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer who nailed his 95 theses to the cathedral door in Wittenberg 500 years ago next month, called this a wonderful exchange. He once wrote, that is the mystery which is rich, rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. It's powerful, isn't it? That's the gospel message in a nutshell. So to, to recap this, this wonderfully powerful passage, we've, we've been given this new covenant ministry that all of us are called into if you are united with Christ. So first, this, this new covenant ministry that we've been given, point number one, really, I'll just throw these up on the screen so you can see them. Number one is that it's a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual ministry, not a human endeavor, but the Holy Spirit who does this. We have to learn to be people of depth, people who see past the surface, people who refuse to buy into the lie of outward appearances if we're going to do this thing right. Second, this ministry must be set on those outside the faith. We, we seek to persuade those who are not yet believers so that they too can become a part of what God's doing. Out of the love of Christ, we are compelled to look outside the walls of this church to those who are lost and searching and in need of hope. Third, it must be selfless. We have died to ourselves. We've died with Christ in order to live not for ourselves, but to live for him. In giving ourselves away, we find ourselves. Matthew 10, 39, whoever would find his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary uh, in the, the 50s, said, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. It's true. It must be selfless. Fourth, this ministry is shaped by the love of Christ that controls us, that forms us, that trains us to live godly lives, zealous for good works in the present age, always hopeful of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth, this ministry is situated in the context of the story of everything ever. 
We as the covenant people of God are to be the conduit of blessing to the world now. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ on earth now as He reigns from heaven. We're playing our part now in God's redemptive purposes for the cosmos as we head towards resolution. And finally, this this ministry that we've been given is solidly rooted, solidly planted in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and gave us his righteousness in exchange for all of our sin and shame and suffering. Our ministry is spiritual. It's set outside these walls. It's selfless. It's shaped by Christ's love. It's situated in context, and it's solidly planted in the gospel. Let those six truths permeate our lives this week. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word you give us of hope, of truth, of beauty, of freedom, that through your death and sacrifice, we can live, that we can truly find abundant and eternal life. God, forgive us for for being so petty, for, for chasing after worldly things, for regarding people and our lives according to the flesh. Give us spiritual eyes to see beyond the surface reality. May we be so shaped by love of Christ that our lives would be totally formed and controlled and compelled by Christ's love. Forgive us of adding rules to Christianity. Forgive us of trying to say that Jesus plus something equals salvation. God, in Christ alone, we place our trust. We renew our commitment to the sufficiency of Christ to atone for our sins, to empower us in this world, and to guide us as we go forth from this place today. Lord, help us to be effective, not for our own sake, not for our church, but so that your kingdom would advance, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this all in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Paul says at the end of of chapter 5 that we implore you, be reconciled to God. There's only one way to do that, we believe, through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you've never accepted uh, the free gift of salvation that God offers us through Jesus Christ, his son, there's no better time to do so than now. It's the most important decision you can ever make, right, Brett? It's the most important thing you can do is give your life to Christ. Maybe you're doing life kind of solo and you think you're doing okay. Well, the truth is none of us are doing okay. We're in need of a Savior. Maybe you need a team that can remind you of that, a team that can encourage you and keep you accountable, a team that can uh, walk with you through all the hard times in life. If you want to be a part of what God's doing here at Woodmont, we'd love to talk with you about joining this church as a member. We, We believe in church membership here at Woodmont Baptist Church. I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you are uh, unreconciled to somebody. Maybe there's a rift between you and someone in your life that you need to repair. This, this message of reconciliation is vertical and horizontal. Maybe there's some horizontal work that you need to do today. Whatever it is that the Lord places on your heart, don't leave this place today until you are reconciled to God and to one another. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.